0: You can also check us out online by going to ouravenuechurch.com. We really pray that something in this message inspires and equips you to experience the way of life you were created to live in Christ. Enjoy. Let's jump into week two of Thriving in Babylon. You guys ready? Um, we're in week two of learning how to love well and stand firm in a culture that's always changing. And I really think the best picture that we see in that is found in the book of Daniel. And if you've grown up in church at all, you've heard the Bible stories of Daniel and the lion's den and, you know, Rackshack, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. And so we're familiar with a lot of those. But what we don't always understand is the cultural context of what's going on in that time and that the children of Israel, their hearts have turned very far away from God at this point. And as a result, God has allowed them to be taken captive by the nation of Babylon with an intent of seeing their hearts turned back to him. And we looked at last week that even though Babylon is not like an earthly kingdom, a country even now, that there is a attitude, a mindset and really, you know, within our faith, it's a spirit that is behind culture that wants to captivate and capture the people of God and indoctrinate the people of God um, into the Babylonian culture. And so we looked at that really the primary goal of the Babylonian spirit is to elevate, because we've all heard the story of the Tower of Babel, right? To where they wanted to build themselves a tower so that they could become famous and reach heaven, And so the spirit, the attitude, the motive behind this Babylonian thought is to elevate yourself. And what happens when you elevate yourself? You lower God. And so in doing so, the Babylonian thought is is seeking pleasure, is self-preservation, is doing things the easy way. And so we see Daniel and his friends caught up um, in this this culture. And so go to to Daniel chapter 1 verses uh, two and three. Last week, I only read one verse from the book of Daniel. I've got a few more this week, but I'll start with the one I read last week that said, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And verse two, look at that. Who gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over Israel? Who? It says, the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects to the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia, these these things that were in the temple, and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Asphanaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family, not the scrubs, right, but the royal family and the noblemen who had been brought to Babylon as captives. And so these noble young men who had been brought into Babylonia as captive, Nebuchadnezzar is now wanting them brought into the palace. And this is after he's already taken the things of God out of the temple of God and placed them in his God's temple, you with me? And what Babylon attempts to do is to defile the things of God the things that, that, that are important to God, the things that have value to God, not just material things, but, but values and 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 statutes and laws, to take them and defile them, and then also to take the people of God and to begin to corrupt them. That's what Babylon attempts to do. And so we go on in verse six, and, and here we get the names of the individuals that have been brought into captivity, and now they've been brought to the palace, and it says there was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah were the four of the, only four, four of the young men. So we're only hearing the story of four of them, all from the tribe of Judah. And it says the chief of staff renamed them to Babylonian names. So we've got their Hebrew names. Those are about to be removed and they're going to have placed on them Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. It says, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. And anytime I say those, I think of VeggieTales, Rack, Shack, and Benny. Anybody else? Right. And you got the giant chocolate bunny that they bow down to worship. Right. Anytime I read that. But what has happened is they have had their Hebrew names removed and now Babylonian names placed on them. Because one of the first things that culture will try to do to God's people is culture will try to name you. Culture will try to name you, and and Daniel and his buddy's names, they weren't just drawn out of a hat, and I remember when we got our first, like when we were expecting our first child, and that was before Google was really big, believe it or not, and we were buying name books, do you guys remember those? They were like massive, like you could use them as a paperweight or a doorstop, and so we're going through trying to decide what Ella's name would be. She loves it, my kids love it when I tell parenting stories, right? I'll be in trouble afterwards. That's okay. I'm dad and pastor, so boom. Um, But so we had narrowed it down to Carly and Ella. we had had the two names narrowed down. And Jennifer was like, you can decide. You can decide. I'll let you decide what the name's gonna be. I'm like, oh, all right. So we decided, I decided on Ella. And Ella means light of God. But here's how I let, this is how awesome of a husband I was three kids later. And it's a, it's a little harder to be awesomer in this day and time. But here's here's how I let Ella know, or my wife know, Jennifer know that we were gonna name Ella Ella. is I, I got a Christmas card to mom from daughter. It was like a kid's Christmas card. And I wrote a note from Ella who wasn't born yet, mind you, with my left hand. So that it would look like child, like a child's handwriting. And so how, you know, I can't wait to meet you. You're going to be a great mom, but dad's even better. Like all these things. And then I signed it Ella. So that's how I let Jennifer know that Ella's name was going to be Ella. But we put some prayer and we put some thought into it. Now, with our last child, it was like two days after she was born. And they're like, "We get look, we're closing the office for the weekend. Have you got a name for this? Because we were struggling between Amelia and Olivia. And so we went with Amelia. But, but Ella's name means light of God. And so these Daniel and his friends, their names had meaning. And when Babylon changed it, the, the, the culture was also taking away their heritage. Daniel meant this. It means God is my judge. And his name was changed to something that meant Bell will protect or Bell's favorite. And we've all seen those, you know, individuals that have the tattoo that says only God can judge me or they've got the window sticker that says only God can judge me. And really that's just coming from a mindset like I'm going to do whatever I want and you can't say anything, right? But what Daniel's name means is like is, it, it, it doesn't mean that it means God will prove me right? That whoever comes against me, God will prove me right. And now it's been changed to Belteshazzar. I have trouble saying that. And it means Bel's favorite. And what is happening is Babylon is trying to woo Daniel away from his God saying, you're now going to be our God's favorite. Because that's what culture does. And Hananiah means the grace of the Lord. Hananiah means grace of the Lord, or the Lord has been gracious to me. But Shadrach means this. It means I am fearful. I am a coward. And it means that I am commanded by Aku changing focus from the Hebrew God, the one true God to now a false Babylonian God that that I was someone who was receiving grace from the Lord but now I'm receiving commands from a foreign God. Mishael means he that is the strong God. We've been singing this all morning, who can compare to our God? But his name was changed to Meshach which means I am despised. It means who is like Aku. And so that's what culture tries to do is is shift how how God sees us and understanding how God sees us to the negativity of how the world wants to see us. And then Azariah means the Lord is my help, but Abednego means servant of Nago, which was the second most important God. And so you got to see what, what culture is doing is taking the shift off the things of God for the people of God and placing them on foreign gods, changing their identity. Because the first thing that culture wants to do is to, to name us, to attack our identity. And even if you go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, in the garden, when Adam and Eve were living in just perfect relationship and, and, and commune with, with God, and the enemy comes to tempt Adam and tempt Eve and attack all that God has created as good, he gets us to question two things, who God is and guess what the other is, who we are. He's attacking Adam and Eve's identity when he says this in Genesis chapter three, verse five, he's, he, he's tempting them and says, look, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, talking about the fruit from the one tree they weren't supposed to eat from. And he says, when you eat it, you will be like who? God. He's saying, look, God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because he says, if you eat of this fruit, God knows you will be like him, knowing both good and evil. But here's the thing. When we read the creation story, it said God created man and woman in whose image? His image. And so we were already created in his image. So so Satan, the enemy, is trying to get us to doubt who God says that we are. He's coming after our identity. He's been doing it since the beginning. He did it in Babylon. And guess what? He's doing it today. And so when you look at our culture, and it's so polarizing and so divided and divisive and categorical based off what? How we view ourselves. But not in light of who God says we are, but in light of what culture is saying from everything from sexual identity to even gender identity. But you read scripture, it says male and female, he created them, right? Political identity. Like I get real nervous as a pastor in the church when it gets around election time because Christians can honestly, like Christians can get real ugly and mean around that time because what's happening is our identity is shifting from gospel centered to political centered our identity shifts from gospel centered to political centered. Sometimes we 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 base our identity off our finances, off our finances, our racial identity and even within the church, guess what we have? denominational identity, right? There are denominations that think they're going to be the only ones in heaven. They're going to be sorely disappointed. But I also think we're going to be surprised about who's there, right? That there are people that that we identify that may not, should not, will not. And we get there, we'll be like, what are you doing here? And they're probably gonna say the same thing, right? But here's the crazy thing. So... Being in church ministry, you're always looking at church stats to see where people are at, how they're attending, what the church movement is looking like. And as a youth pastor, it was, it was always this horrible number that, that 80% of teenagers leave the church when they graduate high school because they were heavily involved in youth group and then they graduate and then they leave the church. And, and that number is really close to being true after seeing that in 20 years of ministry. But what I've also seen is young people coming back to the church. And there's this, there's this wilderness desert period from the time that they graduate high school. And some of you maybe even have experienced that you graduate high school and then there's this period of time to where you're not as plugged in in church and, and your relationship with, with, with Christ is not as vibrant as it used to be. And so this new stat that's come out that is talking about, because millennials, like if you're a millennial, raise your hand if you identify as millennials. So it's most of our church, right? Really most of our church. And so I try to creep in, right? I'm kind of like on the back end of the Gen X movement, right? And we're just the forgotten generation. We're the middle child, right? <laughs> this is like, I've got a middle child. You just want to make sure you have her, right? Love you, Edison. <laughs> but, but when you look at the millennial generation, now this is the scary part, okay? I want to make sure I, I get the stat right. Is 8%, 8% of millennials who grew up in church, who went to church, kids church, went to youth ministry, were connected to church, had a growing relationship with Christ that only 8% of millennials who grew up in church identify as a resilient, committed disciple of Christ today. Guys, that's that's only 8% of those that went to church. Think about that whole generation, how much smaller that percentage even is. And so here's what we have to come to the realization for those of us who are walking with Christ and we see culture changing all around us. And when culture tries to name us based off our gender, our sexuality, our finances, our race, we need to know who we are. When culture tries to name you in order to stand strong, you have to know who you are. Psalms 139, David says this. He says, look, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The works of your hand, I know them too well. How well do we know God's work in our life? That it affects our understanding of who we are. I read this quote by W.C. Fields, and it's so true. He says, it ain't what they call you, but it's who you answer to. Let that settle. It ain't what they call you, but it's who you answer to. See, they called Daniel Belteshazzar. But in his heart, he knew he was Daniel. God is my judge. And when you read through the book of Daniel, when it gets to the end and Nebuchadnezzar is, is interacting with Daniel and Daniel has been faithful through the years of both serving the king, but also serving his God, Nebuchadnezzar begins to stop calling him Belteshazzar. And he says, we called him Belteshazzar, but his name is Daniel. So Daniel was able to retain his identity because he knew his identity was not what they called them, but it's who he answered to. And he didn't answer just to the king. He answered to his God, amen, right? And so we need, to, we need to know who we are when culture tries to name us. And, and one of the things that we do here at Avenue Church, we have three pillars, right? Based off Jesus' statement where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that the way for you is to experience God's unconditional love. That's what he wants for you more than anything else. The truth is the answer that we're all looking for is who am I? What is my identity? And we want for you, we say that we want you to find your identity in Christ, not in anything else. Not in a a church brand, not in a pastor, not in a, I got an amen, let's go, right? We want you to find your identity in Christ. And Paul even says this, that your real life is hidden in God In Christ that's where our real identity is let's continue on with the story in Daniel 1 verses 4 and 5 and it says look we're going to select only strong healthy and good-looking young men make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace Exhibit A, so this is like who they would have picked, right? Young, healthy, good looking, right? Well-versed, wise, it's this guy. But you gotta look, like Nebuchadnezzar's taking the best of the best. He's taking the best of the best. And here's what's gonna happen with him though. He says, here's what we're gonna do. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon, says the king assigned them. So we're going to train them in the language and the literature. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. Wow, kitchens. I have a hard enough time. I just now caught that. I have a hard enough time keeping one kitchen clean, like multiple kitchens. So food from their kitchens. They were to be trained for three years. And then they would enter the royal service. The next thing after trying to name you, here's what culture will try to do. Culture will try to tame you. Culture will try to tame you. And what I mean is like take who you are and what you believe and begin to shift that and change that and break that. If you think about taming a wild horse, what you're doing is you're breaking that horse's spirit. And so what they're attempting to do is to take these four young Hebrew boys who have grown up in the things of God, had the spirit of God, and is now attempting to break their spirit, to tame them. And we read that, that Daniel was gonna be taught the language and the literature, but you gotta understand, like this was full cultural indoctrination. This is a pagan civilization. They believed in witchcraft and, and incantations. And so Daniel is learning all of this stuff. When I understood that, I'd read it for years. Sunday school I was like, oh, you had to like learn Babylonian history. It's probably about as exciting as you know world and U.S. history when you're in high school, right? But it's not just that. He's also learning really magic and dark spiritual things. And on top of that, he's saying, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you can have all this glorious food from my kitchens and eat it. And this is this is what what, what Daniel decides to do. So what you gotta understand about this food is it was offered to Babylonian gods as a sacrifice and then brought to the table. So it was considered unclean. It was against the law for Daniel and his guys to eat of this food. And this is what Daniel decides to do in verse eight. He says, but Daniel was, what's that word? Is it on the screen? Was what? Determined. determined. It says, Daniel was determined not to defile himself By eating the food and wine given to them by the king, he asked the chef chef of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Daniel was determined not to defile himself because eating the food that had been offered to gods, eating the food that, that was against his regulations, by his understanding in the Old Testament, it would defile him spiritually. And it says he asked permission not to eat it. So when culture tries to tame us, to indoctrinate us, here's what we have to do. We have to know where we stand. We have to know where we stand on the things of God. And when we know where we stand on the things of God, guess what we have to do? We have to stand there. Be immovable, steadfast, as scripture calls it. And and they, Daniel is not being forced in to Babylonian thought, here's here's what's happening. He's being lured away. Here's the food from the king's table. Here's all these incredible spells. He's being lured away. And if you look at maybe your life or maybe other people's life, like we weren't forced in, because I went through a season where I was not walking with God. And let me tell you, I wasn't forced into it, right? If we've ever walked away from God, it was we were lured away from God. Would you guys agree? Like like we were lured away from things from the world's table. We were, we were captivated by it. We were captivated by it, drawn away from it, and then we were held captive by it. So we have to know where we stand on the things of God, the values of God, the decrees of God. Isaiah says this, it says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness those that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter and what he's saying look woe unto those who call the things of darkness things of light look out for those who call the things which scripture says are bad and calls them good you guys understand what i'm saying like like and if you think about the changing culture that we're in now is that not what we're seeing is we're seeing the things that that God says are good be nothing but good. And we now see culture taking those same things and saying that they are bad. And it's taking the things that culture says are good are actually bad in God's eyes. Let's keep going. And so they could have justified eating, right? Daniel could have justified eating the king's meat. They were away from home, Like the pastor wasn't around, mom and dad wasn't around, we can probably get away with it. But he made a decision not to defile himself. Um, It says that these were four. These were four of the ones that were brought into the palace. Guess what that means? There were others. There were others that were brought into the palace, but guess what probably happened to them? They got tamed, they ate from the king's table. They gave in to the culture and we don't hear about them. And so we have to know where we stand. David says this in Psalm 119. He says, I have chosen to be faithful. I have determined to live by your regulations. And he says, I cling to your laws. Don't let me be put to shame. You know the best time to make a decision and to make a choice before you have to make it, right? Right now, before you have to make it. And so I love this thought, like David has already chosen, look, I've chosen faithfulness over everything else. I've determined not to defile myself. And so when we're looking at culture changing and, and, and you may be thinking, I, you know, it's never gonna affect me. I'm not gonna be captivated by it guess what? You just increased your chances of being captivated by it, being indoctrinated by it. So we have to make a decision before the decision has to be made. And so culture will try to name you. Culture will try to tame you. And then lastly, this is what happens. Culture will try to claim you as your own, to get you to conform, to accept, to totally forget that you were a Daniel and now your belts are, right? To totally forget who you were. And completely just absorb you into culture. And there's this there's this author and pastor on the West Coast. His name's John Mark Comer. Um, I actually think in years to come he will be a modern theologian and we will look at him as we look at C.S. Lewis and some of these other guys in the years to come, just because he's just brilliant and and he brings so much truth. And he is pastoring in probably maybe not quite as up there as C. S. Lewis, right? But but he is pastoring in a very progressive area of our country. And he is facing things in the church that he has pastored and just in life that we have yet to face here in good old Murfreesboro, Tennessee, right? We are the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. Now, we will face those in time, would you agree? But he's facing things and seeing things that I believe we will in our future and and what he is seeing, listening to a podcast this week is there's progressive Christianity and we've heard the term, we've read about it and maybe we're a little uncertain, but kind of one of the caveats of progressive Christianity is, is to almost pass off as a non-believer. To blend in with culture and then when someone discovers that you're a Christian, to think that it's cool and that I didn't know. It's like, oh, it's like, do you guys get what I'm saying? It's like to blend in so that people don't obviously automatically know that you're a Christian. And when they find out, it's like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know you were a Christian. That's scary, church. But that is how culture tries to claim you. And he makes this statement, and it's so powerful. He says, if your relationship with Jesus doesn't have a resistance and a contrast to the culture around you, it will evaporate and disappear. If our relationship with Jesus does not have a contrast with the culture around us, which means it, it doesn't look different, right? If it doesn't look different and there's not some resistance to the culture around us, eventually that faith is going to evaporate and disappear. That's why we only hear about four of, you know, four of the Hebrew boys that were taking into Babylonian captivity because I believe everyone else, eventually their faith dried up and disappeared. And so for you and I walking in relationship with Christ, we should stand out. Now, I don't, like, I'm, you guys know, I'm not saying you, you, you grab your big family heirloom Bible that weighs 20 pounds and carry it around, you know, and beat people over, but there should be something different about us. Because when culture tries to claim us, here's what we have to know. We have to know whose we are, which is way more important than who we are. And whose we are, like, who we are, and where we stand is all wrapped up in who God is, right? Who we are and where we stand is all wrapped up in who God is. And guess, guess what? We are his. He says this in the prophet Jeremiah. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And he's actually prophesying to the children of Israel who were, who were in captivity. And we see all throughout the New Testament church, we see Paul saying over and over again that, that we are not our own, that those of us who are walking in relationship with Christ, we have been bought. He says, he says, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased back by the blood of them. So if you are a believer, you are not your own. You are a possession of a heavenly father. And understanding that changes everything. Understanding that brings belonging. That's why it matters. Because when we look at identity and trying to, trying to like figure out who we are, what we're doing is we're trying to find a place to belong. When we place our identity in our sexuality or our gender or our finances or our race or denomination, we're looking for a place to belong. But when you and I can come to an understanding that we have been bought with a price, that we already belong to someone, not a group, but what's happening in our culture today is, is we're looking for a group to belong, but we are owned by our Heavenly Father. He says, this gives order to our lives. All of our other roles in life must be seen in light of this reality. So you may be a lawyer, a manager, a mom or dad, you may be a student. How you live out that role, guys, should be shaped with an understanding that you belong of the creator of the heavens of the earth and you have been bought with a price that can never be repaid. And so I want to ask us this question and you know, it's kind of a, it's heavy, but I want to ask us, Is like, am I changing culture or am I being changed by culture? Am I changing culture or am I being changed by culture? And I don't mean like radical changes. There was a season when I was a freshman in college, um, you know, I grew up in a small one stoplight town, Adamsville. There are more students at Blackman high school, high school than there were people in my town. <laughs> okay. It was gas stations and beauty shops and one, um, red light. And I remember going to Austin P State University, it's where I went to college and it was just, like massive compared to Adamsville. And, and there was a season where I was trying to fit in. We've all been through that season. Right. And so I, you know, I grew up I was you know only guy in my high school that listened to you know rap music and was really an individual and then when I get to college trying to fit in and this is silly but also true in like how we do things like I started switching I stopped listening to rap music and I bought a pair of junco jeans is that what they were called like the wide leg you guys remember those and like, I know, it's disgusting, right? <laughs> and, 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 and I bought a wallet that, that had a chain on it because I thought that was, like I was trying to be a skater. I'd never skated a day in my life, but the people I wanted to hang out with, they skated and they listened to alternative music like Everclear and all this other stuff. And so I was trying to change who I was to fit in. And yes, I was 19, 18, 19. And we think that's just something kids do. But I've, as I've grown older, I've seen adults do it. And in all reality, like I've found myself doing it at times. I go to a conference and there's other pastors there and I try to be cool or whatever. And it, 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 it happens slowly, subtly it happens being lured away from the things of God into the culture of God. And before we know it, we're transformed not into the image of Christ, but into the image of the world. And so I want to ask you, like, are you being changed by culture or are you changing culture? And Romans 12, 2 says this. We've all heard this, Right. Um, I even had a t-shirt that had this verse on there. had a transformer on it. It was one of those cheesy Christian t-shirts that you buy at the Christian bookstore. It says, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God, what, transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. How do we know who we are? How do we stand on values? How do we know whose we are. is by allowing God to transform the way that we think, not culture. Three ways that we do that. It's through the word of God, through the spirit of God, and it's through the people of God. But the one consistent in all of those is God. We stay as close to God as we can in His Word. We stay as close to God as we can in following His Spirit. And then, even this, guys, we stay as close to God as we can within community. Not that we isolate ourselves, because that doesn't do any good, but we insulate ourselves so that when we go out, nothing's getting in. Does that make sense? And so here at Avenue Church, we want, we want to help you understand the word of God. That's what Sunday mornings and sermons are about, and that's what small groups are about. We want to be led by the Spirit of God. That's what took place kind of in worship, but we don't want that just to take place in worship on a Sunday morning. We want you to be led by the Spirit of God Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday, every day. And then we want you to be surrounded by the people of God, and Sunday mornings are great. I love worshiping with you guys, but there are six other days of the week where you need to be surrounded by the people of God. And, and as, as our church grows on a Sunday morning larger, I want us to grow smaller Monday through Saturday with small groups. And so if you're not in a small group, we're halfway through the semester, but guess what? There's still time. We've got groups meeting almost every night of the week, but get in the community so that you can be reminded by God's word and God's people who you are so that you can regain strength and boldness to stand, to know where you're supposed to stand. And then just be reminded about whose you are because that's the most important thing. Because we get that right, everything else falls into place. And for some of you that are here today, like that that may be you, like you trying to find your identity and your place in a bunch of different cultural things and it just doesn't fit and feel right. That's because that's not where you're supposed to be. You have been bought with a price to be brought into God's family. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you've said, what's in the past, all of that is taken care of when we say yes to Jesus. And we even see this in scripture, and I love this out of Ephesians. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. By bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. And this last line, listen to it. It says, this is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. So bringing you into relationship with him, taking all your junk and cleaning it up and setting a new path for you, says that brings him great pleasure because that's what he wanted to do. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you today and you've been trying to allow culture to name you just so you can find your place and through that man, you've kind of sacrificed and surrendered some of the things of God in your life and because of that there's separation between you and he In this very moment you, that, that separation and that chasm and that gap can be closed in not by anything you do but because of everything that he's done and if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus I just simply want to pray for you it's not my words that save you but it's yours and I want to invite you if you would just lift your hand so I know who I'm praying for and I want to pray that right where you're seated that as I'm praying you're praying saying Jesus I'm sorry forgive me I give you my life I surrender to you I want to follow you and it's your words not mine it's not all that's going to be said but it's the start of an incredible conversation And then for the rest of us, I'm going to pray that that individually and corporately as a church, that we would stand in culture, not just shouting at it, but we would stand firm and knowing who we've been created to be, knowing what's been put on the inside of us, but more importantly, knowing who God is in our life. So Father, we just come to you this morning. God, I thank you for just an incredible time in your house with your people. God, even before the sermon, you were speaking to hearts and speaking to lives and making changes and shifts. So God, whatever was said and spoke during worship, God, I just seal it by your power that we would walk in Monday with the truth of who you are. God, for those that lifted their hands and maybe they didn't raise their hand, but their hearts are lifted, something's stirring on the inside of them, whether it was today or it's in the past week that you're doing a new work in them. God, I pray that they say yes to you. God, that your unconditional love and grace is just surrounding them. God, that you're taking that, that sin and that guilt and that shame and you're placing it as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. God, you choose not to remember. But God, when the enemy tries to remind them tomorrow what they've done, remind them of who they are in you and what you've done. And God, for those of us that maybe we're in a work culture, God, maybe we're in a home culture. Relationships, organizations that's shifting away from you and just your best for our life and even our nation. God, there's been some questions and there's been some worry about what will happen and even where are you in the midst of that? God, I pray that we would all determine not to defile ourselves when culture tries to press in, in. but that we would stand on your word and your values, bringing glory to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, listen, if you pray that prayer.